Welcome, everyone, to the Equity Expert Podcast, where we talk about all things equity compensation. I'm Jen Namazi, Director of Content for the NASPP, and today I am joined by our Executive Director, Barbara Baksha. Thank you for joining us, Barbara. Always very happy to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be the guest today and not the host. Yes, (laughs) it's always fun when we get to do it together. So, Before we get started and jump into today's episode, I want to just highlight to everybody that you can subscribe to this podcast from your favorite podcast platform. We're basically on all of them, so Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and so forth. By subscribing, you will be notified about new episodes, so they will just come right to your podcast app. And then if you like what you're hearing from this podcast, please give us a review. It will help the podcast be noticed out there in the podcast app world and draw more attention to this niche podcast on equity compensation. All right, so today we're going to dive into some recent trends around retirement provisions. And if you've been in equity compensation for a while, this is probably a term that's very familiar to you, at least in principle. If you're newer to equity compensation, you might think, well, retirement, what could be so complicated about retirement? That seems very simple. But what happens is what, as an employee works for a company, there's some nuances to navigate around retirees. And for one thing, when you're dealing with equity awards and an employee becomes eligible to retire, there's some questions around well, what happens to those equity awards even if they don't retire? And what do you do with the equity awards when they do retire if they're still outstanding? So there are some nuances around managing employees who are eligible and or are retiring. And this can be a bit tricky at times to administer. So we cover this in our research and benchmark data. And in the NASPP slash Deloitte Consulting, this is a partnership with Deloitte, the 2021 Equity Incentives Design Survey, we recently collected data on some of those practices around retirement provisions. So Barb is here because she's going to give her insights into some of those observations from the data that we have from that survey. So Barb, let's jump in. The first thing I want to ask you about is, okay, retirement eligibility typically has a couple of things that need to be attained. So I think from our experience, mostly it's, there's got to be a defined minimum age and a number of years of service. And those kind of combined together deem someone retirement eligible. So can you talk a little bit about that and then what we saw in terms of how those fit together from the data we're seeing in practice? Oh my God, Jen, the way the companies define who is eligible to retire is so crazily complicated and creative. There are so many different things that companies look at in terms of defining who's eligible to retire. I will say that you are right. Sort of the largest bucket is about 46% of respondents define retirement eligibility using both a minimum age and years of service. But that accounts for less than half of respondents to the survey. So that leaves 54% of respondents that are doing something else. And you're probably wondering, well, what else are they doing? And I'll tell you, they're all over the map. Companies are just so creative here in terms of how they define who's eligible to retire. So some of them have just a minimum age requirement. Some have either a minimum age or years of service. Some, the age and the years of service have to add up to a certain number. And some have a combination of 
in some cases, all of those things. So somehow you have to achieve a minimum age or you can achieve a minimum age and a years of service, or you have to achieve a minimum service or a minimum age and a years of service, or could be you have to achieve a minimum age or you have to achieve a minimum years of service, or you have to achieve a minimum age and a years of service. Like you can get really complicated in terms of how you define who is eligible to retire. And like I said, the remaining 54%, there's, there's just not even really one practice that stands out among them. They're, they're really just, they are really all over the map. In terms of the actual requirements for the minimum age requirements, what we typically see is for companies that have a, just a single age. So the example where you just have to eat, achieve a minimum age or where you have to achieve a minimum age or and years of service that age requirement is usually somewhere in the range of 50 to 55 years. That is 51% of respondents. And then there's another 26% of respondents where that age requirement is in the 56 to 60 years of age. For the companies that are more complicated, where they have multiple age requirements, so this might be a company where you have to achieve a minimum age, or you could achieve a minimum age plus a years of service. The lowest minimum age, so this would be the minimum age that would be, in my example, that would be in combination with the years of service. That lowest age is typically within the 50 to 55 range, and that's 60% of respondents. And then for the second age, the higher age, this would be maybe the standalone age that people can achieve. That interestingly is also typically in the 50 to 55 years of age range. So my guess is that for a lot of companies, the low age is 50 and maybe the high age is 55. There are another 25% of respondents where that high age is in the 61 to 65 years of service. Wow. <laughs> there is a lot going on there. And I'm a fan of creativity, Barb. I just think sometimes it can get a little too complicated, but at least the age I, is fairly straightforward. Yeah, I, I agree. It does feel like it's really complicated. And I agree as well. Sometimes it seems like like you can get a little too complicated with these things. I do think that some of the complexity is because companies are just really trying to be fair to their employees. Like you just, you don't want to overpay. You don't want to end up in a situation where someone retires and you maybe feel like they haven't worked for you long enough, but you also don't want to underpay. Retirement is a very important life decision and how equity awards pay out in retirement can really have an important impact on that decision. So I do think that some of this creativity is just companies really trying to be fair to both the company and to employees. All right. So you talked a little bit about minimum age. And then the other factor that you said sometimes blends in with that is minimum service requirements. So what did we see around minimum service requirements? So here things are a little bit simpler because there aren't very many companies that have multiple minimum service requirements. Usually there's just one minimum service. It might be just a standalone minimum service or it might be in combination with an age requirement, but you don't usually have that situation where you can have one minimum service and then another minimum service in combination with age. So there's less data to talk about here and it's a little bit more straightforward. In general, for the majority of companies, and that's that's a slim majority, 54%, that minimum service requirement is 10 years of service. And then there's another 35% where the minimum service requirement is five years. All right. Well, that was, that was easy to navigate. <laughs> yes. So kind of jumping off of that a little bit. So talk for a minute about what happens when employees become eligible to retire. Well, honestly, most of the time when employees become eligible to retire, 
nothing happens in terms of paying out their awards. Now, depending on the type of award they have, particularly if they have either restricted stock or restricted stock units, there's often a tax consequence in the year that the employees become retirement eligible. Uh, we don't really see a whole lot of retirement eligibility on restricted stock because it, the award becomes fully taxable at that point. But for restricted stock units, it is a lot more common for us to see these sorts of retirement provisions on RSUs. And in that case, oftentimes the RSUs are subject to FICA taxation in the year that the employee becomes eligible to retire. For other types of awards, so stock options and for performance-based awards, usually there is not a taxable event in the year the employee becomes eligible to retire. But other than that potential taxable event, for the most part, the awards just continue vesting on their regular schedule. Even for RSUs, where the awards might become subject to FICA in the year that the employee retires, it is unusual for companies to do anything. Uh, in fact, in our survey, 92% of companies said that they do not accelerate vesting at the time that employees become eligible to retire. And I think that that's because if the employees are still working for you, you still want the awards to be subject to vesting. It would create this imbalance where your retirement eligible employees have received a payout of their awards and the rest of your employees have not. And that is likely to be problematic in terms of employee morale until employees actually retire. For the most part, companies just don't do anything with their equity awards. That seems to make a lot of sense. You want them to have still a little skin in the game too, you know. All right. So an employee does retire. They've now decided to retire and uh, that time has come. So what do companies do with the employees' outstanding equity awards and other forms of equity? So is there payouts? Do they accelerate vesting? Is it a combination? So once employees do actually retire, it is very common for companies to provide some sort of payout to the retiree. It depends on the type of award, but I would say overall, it's around two-thirds of companies that provide some sort of payout to their retirees. Payouts to retirees are most common for performance awards and least common for stock options. And then stock grants, time-based full-value awards sort of fall somewhere in the middle there. And I think that the reason why payouts for retirees are most common for performance awards is because performance awards are typically granted to really senior executives who often do tend to get more benefits upon retirement. And in the case of stock options and SARs, where payouts are a little bit less common, I think that that is likely a result of the types of companies that grant stock options and SARs. What we see is that there's a real dichotomy between tech companies and non-technology companies. Non-technology companies are much more likely to pay out awards of any type upon retirement than technology companies are. And I think that that in part has to do with company maturity as well. Mature companies are much more likely to have an aging workforce and to have had to think about what to do when employees are going to retire. And once you start thinking about it, you realize it makes sense in a lot of cases to provide some sort of payout to your retirees. For technology companies, which often tend to be less mature companies, they might even be more recent IPOs, they oftentimes also have a younger workforce, and they really just haven't had to think about the question of retirement yet. And technology companies and companies that are less mature, so recent IPOs, oftentimes are the companies that are more likely to grant stock options and SARs. So I think that that is why we see fewer payouts to retirees for options and SARs. Now, when you're paying out to retirees, 
There are multiple ways to manage those payouts. You can accelerate vesting at the time that the individual retires, or you can continue vesting after retirement. And here we see a very distinct dichotomy between performance awards and other types of equity vehicles. For performance awards, it is almost unheard of for companies to accelerate vesting at the time of retirement. By far, where companies are going to pay out performance awards, by far, the most common approach is to continue vesting and pay out the performance award to the retirees at the end of the performance period. The reason for that is that way the award is still subject to the performance conditions so that retirees will only receive a payout to the extent that the performance conditions have been met. And that really makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be in a situation where you know, you're potentially partway through your performance period and you realize, wow, we're not going to hit our performance goals. There is absolutely no chance that we're going to hit our performance goals. And have your executive team realize that, well, if we retire, we're going to get an immediate payout of all these performance awards. And if we stick around and try to improve this situation, we're not going to hit these goals and we're going to end up forfeiting the awards. And that's sort of the opposite of what your equity awards are intended to do. That's the situation you can end up in if you accelerate vesting of performance awards upon retirement. So that's why we see that acceleration so so rarely in the case of performance awards. For other types of awards, so my time-based awards, so full value awards or stock options, practices are, I would say, split between companies that accelerate vesting upon retirement and companies that continue vesting after retirement. I actually have a great blog entry on this where I talk about the advantages of acceleration versus continuing vesting. And I was surprised when I wrote the blog I thought it would be more even, but I actually really came up with a lot more advantages to continuing vesting than I did for accelerating vesting. The main advantage to accelerating vesting is you're you're done with the award. You've paid it out. You don't have to track where the retiree goes and there's sort of no ongoing tracking. But I actually came up with a lot of advantages to continuing vesting. I think Probably the most significant advantage to continuing vesting is that it really entirely removes the equity award from the retirement decision. And that's one of the reasons why companies pay out equity awards upon retirement is that you don't want equity awards to be driving an employee's decision about retirement. For retirees, they've theoretically fulfilled their service to their company. And you want them to make a decision about retiring based on where they're at in their career and how they feel about continuing to work and whether or not they have the financial wherewithal to retire. And what you don't want to have is a bunch of people who are checked out and ready to retire sticking around because they want their equity awards to vest. So that's the general reason why you would accelerate or continue vesting upon retirement. But accelerating vesting upon retirement means that retirees sort of get a little bonus. like They get an extra boost when they retire that they wouldn't get otherwise. If they keep working for the company, the awards just continue vesting. And by choosing to continue vesting after retirement, you really equalize that situation. It does not matter what happens when the individual retires. Whether they continue working for the company or whether they retire, their awards are going to continue to vest on the same schedule. So it really, really neutralizes the equity awards in the individual's decision about retirement. All right. Another decision that companies have to face when they're deciding what to do with their equity awards 
is whether they want to provide a full payout of the equity awards or a pro rata payout. And whether you're accelerating vesting or continuing vesting, you still have this decision. You can either just accelerate or continue vesting on only a portion of the award. And typically that portion would be commensurate with the amount of service that the retiree had completed. Or you can go ahead and provide accelerate and continue vesting on the entire award. Overall, just looking at my three types of vehicles, for the most part, practices are pretty split between companies that do a pro rata payout versus a full payout of the equity award. You know, there are some minor variations. When you continue vesting on options, we see a little bit more of full payout versus pro rata. But for the most part, practices are really pretty split here between pro rata and full payout. Here, you know, the advantage to full payout is, of course, it's better for the employee. They get their full payout and it does help remove the equity awards from the retirement decision. Certainly a lot less complicated from a tax standpoint in the case of full value awards. An advantage to the pro rata payout is that retirees don't get sort of an extra amount that the other employees who are continuing to work for you aren't getting. And it is more simpler from an accounting standpoint, interestingly, but the pro rata payouts are more complicated from a tax standpoint. All right. <laughs> so we've covered a lot there. And I think we just want to touch on one other area, which we haven't talked about yet. So we did talk about, you know, retirement a lot here, but what about the event of a disability or death? What are the companies doing in those situations? Yeah. So in the case of disability and death, we are more likely to see companies pay out than in the event of retirement. So we said around two thirds of companies are paying out for retirement. That percentage jumps up to around 80% overall of companies that are paying out in the event of disability or death. We do sort of see the same overall trend here as well. Companies are more likely to pay out performance awards in the event of death and disability and a little bit less likely to pay out options and SARs in the event of death and disability. I think for the same reasons that we saw that dichotomy in the case of retirees. We do see more acceleration of vesting in the event of death and disability, which is across the board for all three types of vehicles. So for time-based stock options and full value awards, by far the most common approach is to just go ahead and accelerate vesting in the event of death and disability. For performance awards, practices are split. You see about maybe half of companies accelerating vesting and half continuing vesting in the event of death and disability. But that's still, considering that almost no companies accelerate vesting in the event of a retirement for performance awards, the fact that we've moved up to now a half accelerating vesting is a pretty significant shift in terms of what companies are doing for death and disability. I think that the reason for that is because death and disability isn't something that an employee would control or ever ask for or, or want to do. And so there's a feeling that it makes more sense to just go ahead and pay out the awards. And oftentimes in both of those situations, the financial benefit of the award could be really just critically important to either the employee or to the employee's family. And we also see generally, I would say, more full payouts versus pro rata payouts in the event of death and disability. For performance awards, it's a little bit more split between full versus pro rata, but certainly for time-based awards, the majority practice is to go ahead and just do a full payout of the award. All right. Well, I think that wraps up the trends and data we wanted to highlight related to mostly retirement provisions. 
And I want to just remind everybody before we wrap up today that this particular episode is the fourth in a series of podcast episodes that we've done on the 2021 Equity Incentives Design Survey. So we have other episodes covering different aspects of the survey. So you can check those out as well for more insights on the other trends that we've observed. And we've also done two webcasts on the survey in addition to the podcast episodes, and we will put links to all of them in the show notes for this episode. So just look for the show notes and you will be able to find these other resources that are available. And Barb, I wanted to ask you, because we did do these other podcast episodes, if you could just touch on what they are and what we covered so that people will know what else we have to share regarding the survey. Sure. The other episodes were great. We have one episode where Ian Dawson of Deloitte Tax was my guest, and he talked about trends in the types of equity awards companies grant and also which employees they make eligible for equity awards. Uh, And then I recorded a second podcast with Ian where he talked about trends in performance awards. And then in the middle of those two podcasts, I recorded a podcast with Mark Miller of Deloitte Tax where he talked about trends in global equity incentives. And they were all great conversations. They're definitely worth checking out. Well, I encourage everybody to do that. These are really great episodes and I learn a lot every time I listen or have these conversations. So thank you, Barb, for being the guest today and sharing your insights on all this data with us. Thanks for having me. Again, super excited to be the guest. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And with that, we will wrap up and we will see everybody on the next episode.